0: Hello and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm Will Westerkow and we're back at the very end of the 1992 season to talk about songs that didn't actually chart on the modern rock charts, but maybe they should have. We'll call this the bubbling under episode. To help me out is my good friend Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Will. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is kind of a big deal because other than Orly, you're the first guest to appear on this show more than once.
1: Yeah, I thought you were going to say the longest gap between appearances.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that too. Yeah, you're taking (laughs) taking all the medals today. Jeremy is a a big-time music fan. He's got an enormous collection of music. And I brought him in because I thought between the two of us, we could probably find quite a few cool bands, some of which I'm sure you've heard of, and maybe some that are new to you listeners out there. Jeremy, do you know how many albums you own from 1992?
1: About 100, but, you know... It wasn't the prime years of my collecting, so I'm kind of retroactively catching up.
0: Okay. I have about 50 for 1992. And we have some crossover, but I'd be willing to bet there's like 120 distinct albums between our two collections there. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. What do you got in store for us? You know, I have been kicking things off with a a mystery song. I didn't actually plan for that today. Should I throw one at you? Yeah. I want to
1: be stumped. (laughs) I think I've failed every mystery song except for once so far.
0: They're hard. They're usually like number 29 number 30 on the charts like yeah i'll throw a mystery song at you i wasn't planning on this but um here's one from 1992 did not chart great let's give it a go Well, let's uh, let's jump into the actual songs that I plan to listen to, and we're gonna kick things off with probably one of the most important releases of 1992, especially from non-charting bands, and that's from a band called Pavement. Yay! <laughs> yeah, we're both big Pavement fans. Pavement was formed in Stockton, California, in 1989, and I grew up near there in Modesto. And Jeremy, I know you spent some time in Sacramento. Yep. Yeah. So uh, Stockton's kind of right between there, and I've always sort of considered Pavement kind of my hometown boys, even though I technically wasn't from Stockton, and they didn't spend the majority of their career in Stockton, but...
1: Well, I feel the same, especially if you follow through where Malcolmus is living in Portland.
0: Mm-hmm. That's true, yeah. Yeah. We followed him up here. Yeah, <laughs>
1: that's the only reason I'm here.
0: <laughs> We're that big of fans. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, the band was started by Stephen Malcolmus, who originally went just by the initials SM, and Scott Canberg, who went by the name Spiral Stairs. And I didn't know this until just recently, but apparently the duo had previously played together under the band name Bag O' Bones. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Yeah. By 92, they had released, uh, I think, three EPs, maybe four if you count the Summer Babe single. And in 1992, they released their first full-length album, which is called Slanted and Enchanted. And this album was pretty much immediately hailed by critics. And it shows up on all these best of lists. It's considered to be like a highlight of American indie rock.
1: Yeah, I love it. You know, I was 12 when it came out and I was not listening to rock music. So I was oblivious to it. In retrospect, I find it a fantastic album, although it's not my favorite Pavement album. But everything about them that is great is in place. The interesting kind of cryptic lyrics, the cool lead guitar lines, just the general vibe. not the drummer, I guess. they had a different drummer. but his drumming is fine and really nice. Yeah, it's a great album.
0: Yeah. Well we're going to listen to the single trigger cut. Here it is.. great.
1: Yeah, it's so nice to hear it uh, and listen closely. I think under-celebrated part of them is their vocal interplay. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a guy shouting in the background. I'm not sure if that was Bob Nastanovich or whoever. And then uh, the la-la-las, they always have those interesting dynamics. They're these little extra vocal hooks that I really love and appreciate.
0: To me, anyway, Pavement sounds effortlessly cool, but in a way that is still melodic and you can sing along to.
1: Yeah, I think there's some pop melodies and song structures, but with the kind of esoteric lyrics at times and the lo-fi at times production, it's just, it's a good mesh.
0: Yeah. And I will say this is one of my top three pavement songs. Not in terms of like my favorites necessarily. I, I don't know that I've ranked those, but in terms of like lyrics that jump into my head randomly. Uh, oh, really? So I'll just be like hanging out in the kitchen and, you know, Lies and Betrayals, Fruit Covered Nails. Probably right behind Pigs They Tend to Wiggle When They Walk, maybe. That's a great wordplay. Yeah. You know, when I first heard this, you know, I don't know what it was, 97 maybe, like just a a rough guess. You know, the radio was feeding me a lot of Matchbox 20 and Smash Mouth and, you know, Goo Goo Dolls from that era. And my sister showed up with uh, some Pavement and some Pixies. And those two bands just kind of blew my mind and opened me up to all of this type of music, indie rock and college rock, and made me want to start digging backward into earlier stuff. So yeah, I have a special place in my heart for Pavement.
1: Yeah. You know, I didn't know about them until their second to last album around 97. I heard the singles and started getting into it, but then they broke up by the time I was with it enough to maybe see them live. But we did see the reunion tour in the early 2000s and then most recently I saw that with you
0: yeah what was that, like a month or two ago
1: yeah and I've seen Malcolmus live many many times but it was a treat to catch pavement I'm sorry I couldn't catch them when they were an active band but mm-hmm. they still put on a great show
0: actually I was just thinking back on that and one of the times I saw Malcolmus I had no idea at the time but it it was Slater-Kinney's final show before they broke okay. up the first time yeah wow that's cool yeah so Jeremy you said this was not your very favorite Pavement album. Correct. By which you mean you love it. Yes. It's just not like if you're going to rank them, it's not your number one pick.
1: So great album. I'd probably rank it third after Crooked Rain and Bright in the Corners.
0: Yeah, it's a tough call for me. But um, yeah, the first three albums, I think, are the best three albums for me. I really like Wowie Zowie. <laughs> I, I, like, I like the first four. I don't know. It's, it's tough. It's a tough call. Yeah. All
1: but, great stuff, though.
0: Yeah. But I think we can both agree. Fifth album. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one still. Yeah, there's some good songs.
1: But. but yeah, it's a little more stodgy.
0: All right, well, anything else I want to say about Pavement? They're back in touring, like we just said. Are they planning any new music? I have no idea.
1: No. In fact, I heard Malcolmus announced that it would be the ultimate cringe if they recorded new music. Okay. But his solo career is going great. I saw him live this year as well, and it was one of the best shows I've ever seen by him. And it was a really intimate venue, which is the nice thing about him not being in Pavement is Pavement, I was, you know, one of a thousand people at his solo show. I was one of 60. Cool. Yeah. Maybe a hundred. And that was really great. And he played with Chris Funk from the Decembris. But yeah, no new music, sadly. They did just put out that archival double disc of the last album, mm-hmm. though, I want to listen to soon.
0: Yeah, I, I'm looking for a, a half-album version of it. I want them to shrink <laughs> it to an EP. and then I'll, Well, that's how you got to
1: get it and make your own version of the best <laughs> new album.
0: But those of you who do love Pavement... It is cool that all five of their albums now have been released as like double disc, super mega bonus track releases. Yeah, and they're all yeah. worthwhile
1: sets, yeah. including the Slanted and Enchanted one. Yeah.
0: All right, well, that was Pavement. Let's dig a little bit deeper. and Well, not too much deeper, I guess. This is still a well-known band. We're going to be talking about Guided by Voices. Yay. Jeremy, you brought Guided by Voices to the table here. You said 1992 was a pivotal year for the band. And I'm a fan. I'm not a super fan like you are. But my initial re- response was like, isn't 1994 the pivotal year? Like, what were they doing that anyone cared about in 1992? But I guess you have the answer to that.
1: Yeah, well, this is where they got the ball rolling, really. They're from Dayton, Ohio. They put out their first EP in 1986. They were very influenced by R.E.M. in the early days. Propeller is their 1992 album. It's their fourth album. And all their albums up to that point, they did go into the studio, even though they're famously a lo-fi band. But they went into, you know, cheap studios self-financing the records, losing money. They were prepared to break up in 92, and Propeller was their last hurrah. It's also notable that Tobin Sprout, who had briefly been a member before, rejoined for Propeller, and he was the famously Robert Pollard, the chief songwriter's foil, if you will. And all the peak guided by voices involves Tobin Sprout, according to most So you got Tobin Sprout, you got their Farewell album. You also have the introduction on Propeller of they started putting in some lo-fi songs. So instead of just studio tracks, there was also their boombox or whatever tracks they recorded at home. So this is the first launch of them doing this kind of melange of sound where this more cut and paste aesthetic. Beyond that, it started getting national attention. A lot of bands championed it. I think Sonic Youth, maybe Dinosaur Jr. And it was getting a lot of college play. So it was really the first album of theirs that played outside of their hometown.
0: That's interesting because I read that, at least initially, they had only pressed 500 copies of this album.
1: Yeah, and those are all collector items because they all had different covers on vinyl. You know, Robert Pollard does a lot of their art. He does a lot of collage. But they had to rope in friends to make 500 unique covers. So people collect them, you know. Yeah. Of course, I just have the CD with the generic cover. But it's a great album, and it has several of their long-term hits if you will not charting hits but songs that are on their greatest hits album that they play every show almost
0: okay yeah and we're going to listen to one of those today the song's called exit flagger
1: yeah let's hear it here we go was invigorating
0: (laughs) i enjoyed that that was uh i mean it sounded like guided by voices it had the things that you would expect
1: yeah i picked this one because it epitomizes their songs at their best which are the feeling of something very anthemic something you can sing along to when you go to see a guided by voices show the audience typically just belts it along with robert pollard and it's also kind of cryptic almost springsteining like need to move on and change. I don't know what the song's about, but it, to me, it conjures feelings of change and being excited about change.
0: I was picturing Bob driving down the highway and there's literally like the exit and someone's like flagging him to the exit. And he's like, he just peels out. New song <laughs> pops in my head. And he's like the rest of the way home, he's just singing exit flagger.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think his lyrics have a lot of meaning, but it's, you have to look at the subtext and I don't always absorb lyrics that well myself, but I love the song, So Anthemic. It's also very almost punk rock and really one of their more um, up-tempo songs. Robert Pollard is obsessed. He calls it the three Ps, punk, psych, and Prague. Mm-hmm. And he wants all his music to incorporate those.
0: That's a really interesting combination yeah. right there. I
1: think he should add a fourth P because he's such a great melodicist when he wants to that pop, I think, would be valid. But in his mind, it's the other three. And um, just to backtrack a little, it's worth pointing out that he had been a kind of hobbyist musician and had been a professional teacher and was actually kind of late in the game age-wise to uh, hit success. But I find him an inspiring guy. He's got over 100 albums now. (laughs) I only have like 50 of them, but I'm slowly catching up. I think they're almost all worthwhile. You got to... Kind of search for the great songs on each album, but it's. I think the sourness makes the sweet songs all the better.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, and he does write a lot of amazing melodies for sure. Yeah, I mean, I saw Guided by Voices recently. I feel like it was this year. I lose yes, track of time. Yes, it was. It it was. me. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm. <laughs> I'm two for two, so far. I went to Pavement this year. I went to Guided by Voices this year. Can I keep it up? Am I going to have uh, seen every band on our list this year? We'll find out. The next band we're gonna listen to is a Dutch band called Betty Serviert. This is honestly one of the few Dutch bands that I know. I can maybe name two or three, like in the history of all music.
1: Yeah, this might be the only one I know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Betty Serviert was formed in 1986 in Amsterdam, and they're named after a book by a Dutch tennis player. And the book title translates to something like Betty Serves or Service Betty or whatever. And my understanding is that the band broke up almost immediately and then reunited four years later in 1990, after which they stayed together. They're led by singer Carol Van Dyke, who is a Dutch transplant from Vancouver, Canada. English is her first language. So in case anyone was wondering why her her English is so good and her accent is so minimal. I
1: had no idea I'm learning here. Thank you.
0: Yeah. We're going to be hearing a song from their debut album, Palomine. It was released in 1992. The song we're going to hear is also called Palomine, which was released as a single in 1993, but did not chart in the modern rock charts. Are we going to hear the album version to keep it uh, in yeah, line with listen 92? Yeah, let's
1: the 92 album version. Okay.
0: Let's go ahead and hear it. Here's Palomine. How come Makes you feel so scared And now those song I picked that album up a couple years ago, strictly based on the cute picture of a dog on the cover, (laughs) and the name of the band, and the fact that it came out in 92, and uh, I was pleasantly surprised. I really like this album. I like Carol's voice a lot, and I I love that she's singing in a way that is emotive, but she's not like, singing.
1: Yeah, I love this song. I love the band. I, of course, was too young when this came out to notice them, but... Around their third album, I saw the singles on 120 Minutes and was immediately taken with her voice. It is emotive. It has this nice kind of mournful grain to it, but also she can be cheerful at times too. Mm -hmm. I love the guitar sound on this.
0: I mean, it sounds like college rock, grunge-ish type of music from the era, but also... Listening to the guitar, I go like, well, this guy likes Neil Young a lot. It's kind of the vibe I get, and that's fine with me. I I like the sound of that.
1: Yeah. Have you listened to their other work yet? I have not. No, this is Mm. the only album I've heard. Well, study up. I only know their first few albums, but they're all winners. And um, This song seems to be a pivotal one to them in the sense that it's on the album twice, it's that title track, and then they re-record it for their single the next year. I love the dynamics that it's kind of a ballad, but then it gets up-tempo at the end. And uh, I love just the kind of quasi-pun of the title. I mean, it's Palomine one word, but, you know, it seems to be talking about her pal.
0: <laughs> yeah, I would assume it's Is Palomine a word? Maybe it's a Dutch word.
1: I'm assuming it is, like Palomino horses, or I don't know. Yeah. Who knows? We'll have to state up on our Dutch.
0: Yeah. Now, one thing I'm really curious about... Whenever we have a band from a country that's not England or the U.S., pretty much, I'm always curious, like, how did they get signed? How did anyone find this band? How did they get a release in the United States? You know, it's kind of the same deal with the Sugar Cubes. I'm pretty sure this was released on Matador. And I can't imagine that Matador Records had scouts in the Netherlands, like, looking for rock bands.
1: Yeah, that would be an interesting story. But I think it's worth mentioning Matador because... Well, payment was on Matador. Mm-hmm. God of Voices will be on Matador through all their, most of their Prime releases. Their next blow-up album would be B-1000, which Matador distributed. And then they released Alien Lanes and going forward. So we got three for three Matador bands here. Wow. And this is also a fascinating era because Matador got distributed by, I think, Atlantic Records. But you could see these things suddenly moved from the underground to relative mainstream. And I remember buying this Palomine album on clearance at Best Buy Mm -hmm. or Circuit City, actually. Circuit City. (laughs) But I used to get tons of Matador albums at Circuit City. Weird. Because that's how big the CD boom was and how with the Atlantic distribution, Matador was everywhere. So it's kind of an interesting trend. And I'm glad to see these bands in there. To me, this is when I think of college rock, this is the type of music I think of. Mm -hmm. Partly because I really got into it in college myself, late 90s even though, you know, catching up on some early 90s bands, but...
0: Well, I think this band is still active, and I know they continue to release yeah. albums for a real big long time. I think their most recent one was 2018, but um, I think they're still around doing their thing.
1: Have you seen them live this year?
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, no. If they had come to town, I would have seen them, though. I don't think they, they stopped by Portland. Yeah,
1: I'm bringing it up because if you notice, I'm there, okay? I want to see this band. Okay, so
0: yeah, if, if I find they're coming... We're gonna go yeah. see Betty Severe together. Sounds great. I'm down. Oh, when I was looking up this song, I discovered that Palomine was played in episode four of my so called life.
1: Ooh. <laughs> Which so, that soundtrack, my so called life soundtrack, I have that, it's on Atlantic Records. So yeah. there might be some synergy there. Yeah. The Matador.
0: Do you happen to remember if the song's on the
1: it's not on the soundtrack. And I've seen the whole show, but I don't I don't remember it at this point.
0: Yeah. Well there's a lot of music on the show, so Yeah. All right, well, let's jump over to another band. We're going to talk about Jonathan Richmond.
1: For those that don't know, he started The Modern Lovers, and they had one album plus some kind of extra recordings released in other versions. That's how I learned about Jonathan Richmond. though. I'm curious how you learned about him because I can't pinpoint the moment.
0: I know the moment I learned about him.
1: There's something about Mary. Was,
0: yeah, absolutely. There's something about Mary. I'm like, who is this guy that keeps showing up and singing songs? It, it, that might have been it, but I remember just thinking he was
1: kind of a nerd. Like, mm-hmm. and I don't think that at all now. But I was—I don't think I was already a fan. But I know that I was a huge Velvet Underground fan, and I think I followed that trail to things that uh, John Kill produced, and I got into proto-punk. So he produced the first Stooges, the mm-hmm. Patti Smith and Modern Lovers. And those are all like proto-punk bands. I think that's how I got into it. But that's a great electric guitar-based music. Relatively heavy, definitely punkish, definitely influenced by Velvet Underground. But shortly thereafter, he disbanded the group, which included future Cars and Talking Heads members, and eventually led to this kind of throwback, 50s-influenced, acoustic-based, also 60s house party sound. And, uh, the album we're going to reference today, I, Jonathan, is from 92. And it really is a great album that captures all that aesthetic he embraced. And it also throws back to his whole lifetime as a music fan, as a Velvet Underground fan. And it has all these touchstones telling that story. There's an iconic song in there, Velvet Underground, that where he plays parts of Sister Ray. Uh, one of his big hits on the album is Dancing at the Lesbian Bar. But I wanted to talk about that summer feeling.
0: Well, let's listen to it and then we'll talk about it. Here's that summer feeling. Well, when your friends are in town and they've got time for you. When you and them are hanging around and they don't ignore you. When you say what you will and they still adore you. Is that not appealing? It's that summer feeling.
1: That summer feeling is gonna
0: haunt you one day Summer feeling, summer feeling, summer feeling It's gonna haunt you Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for making me cry. (laughs) (laughs) It's deep in December, and uh, I'm currently being haunted and taunted by that summer feeling. But, uh... Seriously, though, I had not heard that song before, and um, that was really nice.
1: Yeah, I'm glad you liked it, and I know it's a bit long. That was a six-minute version. It's not the biggest hit on the album, but it's interesting for a few reasons. One is I think it captures his philosophical and lyrical and emotional aesthetic, which is he's interested in being earnest, sincere, making an emotional connection, he's interested in nostalgia in the past, but he's not romanticizing the past. If you notice in the lyrics, you know, he's like, it wasn't appealing, but you still kind of miss those days. Yeah, And I think that's just honestly an honest fact of growing up, you know, I was not happy every day as a kid, far from it, but I kind of miss being a kid too at the same time. Yeah. So that's interesting. I think it's a lovely song. It's also interesting to me that it's actually not the first time rather that he's released a song. The album I know very well that I've had, I think it was the second of his albums I ever owned, so I've had it for about 20 years or so, is Jonathan Sings from 1983. And this is the opening track on that. It's a three-minute version. But what's interesting about Jonathan Richmond is he is rather prolific, but he'll often re-record his songs and recontextualize them. And I don't see many artists doing that. This song... On the 92 version is you know double the length it's got extra lyrics at the end but overall it's you know the same vibe this album is interesting too it's getting a lot of accolades that pitchfork just released their big 90s review and it was in their top 150 albums it was also in their top 25 indie pop albums well wow. most of this album i jonathan was recorded in his friend's basement studio it's considered a lo-fi album you know, it sounds good. It's not on a boombox, but it was, like, non-professionally recorded and also not labored over, especially. So you have that. You have Guide by Voices in Pavement and are also affiliated with the lo-fi movement. Mm-hmm. It's not the first lo-fi. It happened in the 80s, too, but it really became a mass movement, I think, in the 90s. Sure. And can I just add that I've enjoyed Jonathan many times in concert. First, I saw him live in college in Spain, he was the headlining act, and he was loving it. For those of you who don't know, he loves learning languages. He translated a book of Italian poetry recently. Really? He loves speaking Spanish. He does not have a great accent, but he was loving it, speaking Spanish to the Spaniards. In fact, I think he barely spoke English. But luckily, I was there to learn, so I, I understood him. And he put on a great show. The next time I saw him was also notable. I saw him on 9-11, 2001, the 9-11. He opened for Bell and Sebastian. And, of course, that was a day that looms large for at least most Americans. And it was a very unusual day, and he, it was very comforting to see him perform. Yeah. And then most recently, I saw him. I guess one reason he's gone acoustic when he performs is because to protect his hearing. And he's actually early 70s now. He's such a youthful, boyish man that it's hard to imagine he's basically a, a grandpa. But he's getting up there. He still looks good. But anyhow, at this venue... There was no food or drink allowed in the seating area. And that's not normal. That was his, his special request. And I'm not even sure if he had a mic. It was minimally mic'd. It was just an intimate room, no phones, just everyone listening to him tell stories and sing.
0: Yeah. He didn't want people chewing over him. Is that?
1: Yeah. Or clinking glasses or just being drunk buffoons. Yeah. I've seen limitations, but not just nothing. But, you know, I don't think anyone resented it because it was a super intimate show. And that's really what he's into doing these days. I think in his albums and also even more so live is making a connection with his audience.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's he's a cool guy. He's a really interesting character. Well, I will say as the song started, I could not escape the mental image of him like sitting in a tree strumming his acoustic.
1: Oh, that was brilliant from the Farrelly brothers to have this kind of Greek chorus with this guy.
0: Yeah for you movie lovers out there I just looked this up I was wondering what that was about like why is Jonathan Richmond in this film it was inspired by Cat Ballou. it's a western film where kind of a similar thing happens with Nat King Cole and oh, wow. Stubby K they show up and will sing here and there throughout the, the movie kind of narrating what's going on and um, they asked Jonathan if he had seen that film and he's like yes of course I have and they're like well we're gonna do this thing and we don't know if it's gonna work and so they shot each of his scenes with and without him, just in case the studio said, like, no Ugh. way, it's not going to happen. The studio said it's not going to happen. They did not like it. But when they screened it for an audience, the audiences loved it. Thank so God. That's common it in.
1: sense. It's such a no-brainer that it's so appealing. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think. The only other movie I can think of that kind of does that is Life Aquatic with the guy performing David Bowie constantly. Yeah. But as a music lover, I think it's a great effect, especially if it's, well, in the case of Life Aquatic, it's natural. In the case of this, it's not, but it's, it works with the, being a comedy.
0: All right, we got a couple more we're going to listen to. I'm bringing another fairly obscure band to the table here. This band is called The Spent Poets. Are you familiar with these guys?
1: No, and this is why I like your podcast. i got to learn about these bands.
0: Yeah, so Spent Poets were formed in 1988 in San Francisco as a recording project between singer Adam Gates and guitarist Matt Winiger. It's very pop-oriented. These guys are clearly Beatles fans. It makes me think of like an American wonder stuff. But there's also like a lot of literary references. So if you listen to the lyrics, you'll hear stuff about Virginia Woolf and Sylvia Plath and references to the Beatles as well and Albert Einstein, things like that. Yeah. And I'll talk more about the band after we hear the song. But I specifically did not pick one of their singles to listen to today. I picked uh, what I'm going to call a a Jeremy-centric song. And we're going to hear a song called Walt Whitman's Beard. (laughs) Nice. Jeremy, you're a a Walt Whitman fan or expert? How should I phrase Uh, that?
1: Former expert. I did have to write my college thesis on it, a little 90-page essay studying Walt Whitman.
0: 90 pages of Walt Whitman. Do you know anything about his beard? Or did you just study his poetry? It was magnificent.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A robust gray silver beard.
0: Well, uh, the spent poets liked it too. They should. Let's go ahead and listen to it the
1: The song itself, I did enjoy. It was maybe bordering on a little chaotic for me, but... Um,
0: I mean, yeah, the I don't know if it's a pre-chorus or just a chorus, but very different from the verse. Unexpected and maybe a little too abrupt when it comes in. That's how I
1: mean, like disjointed. It's not like they're playing softly or anything. It's just felt a little disjointed to me at times.
0: But very catchy, very poppy once we get to the, the chorus stuff. Clearly out of step with the time. <laughs> you know what i yeah. mean like like this does not sound like the other songs we heard what
1: do you think that kind of orchestral rock i mean it reminds me a little bit of that Beach beachway stuff or like pre soft bulletin by flaming lips mm-hmm. but so interesting ideas
0: sure. i'm i'm interested yeah i mean i i listened to the album i think the album's just full of pretty catchy songs very poppy i don't know i mean i think they had talent i think they're, they had something going on there that was pretty interesting yeah definitely they were on geffen And they had actually recorded a follow-up album called Steve. Uh. It was set for a 1993 release. And Geffen decided to shelve it right before it was released. And they dropped the band. The album's never seen the light of day. And, you know, obviously the band split up. So this album is kind of one and done for the band, even though there's another one presumably floating out there somewhere in the archives or whatever.
1: That's a shame. Yeah, I can imagine... You know, maybe it's not good, but a lot of bands get better. And this was already interesting enough. So, is this one out of print, probably?
0: Yeah, The Spent Poets' first album is out of print. It's not on Spotify. You gotta track down a CD copy. This is why I'm
1: still a collector. Yeah. I feel like, as a serious music fan, I can't find stuff on the streaming services. I mean, I can find plenty, but not enough. Not
0: everything you're looking for. No Spent Poets. (laughs) (laughs) There's no Spent Poets. Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. All right, well, we're gonna hear one more band. This is a band uh, you picked. Well,. I guess we kind of picked it together. But like I said last episode, there's pretty much no black people on the charts this year. That's unfortunate, especially because I think 92 was a pretty big year for what I guess we can call alternative rap. And the modern rock charts have featured some alternative rap before. So uh, I was sort of surprised that Arrested Development did not show up on the modern rock charts.
1: Yeah, I'm surprised too. My only guess would be maybe they were just considered when things become too pop.
0: Yeah. Whatever that means. Sure. I mean, this, this was a very successful album. The singles were pretty successful even on the pop charts. So that could have been a factor. Like If, it, if this album bombed, it's entirely possible we might have seen the song show yeah. up on the modern rock charts.
1: Well, I appreciate you letting me talk about this band. As I hinted at, I was 12 in this period. I did not listen to rock. I listened to exclusively hip hop and R&B. And I loved Arrested Development. Now, my dad is a music lover, but he never understood rap. And I really tried to get him into Arrested Development because they have such a socially conscious message. And I mean, let's face it, they're kind of white people friendly from a certain perspective, but he still didn't take the bait. (laughs) (laughs) I tried really hard to get him into this, but I love the band. It was the first time I had heard um, Afrocentric music be it hip-hop or otherwise. You know, I listen to plenty of black artists in hip-hop, but it was more pop or a little bit of gangster rap. And mainly East Coast. And Arrested Development's interesting because, you know, in the history of hip-hop, it started in New York. It was an East Coast thing. Then, you know, L.A. and the West Coast got some ground. But they didn't want to accept that hip-hop could come from other areas. Arrested Development are one of the earlier bands from the South. They're from Atlanta, Georgia. But that continued into OutKast's heyday when they won like best rap artists and like stuck it to the East and West Coasts yeah. in their acceptance speech. So this went on for many more years after that, this kind of effort by the South and other areas of the country to earn or be respected as hip hop artists and rap artists. Sure. But they had a few great singles. We're going to talk about Tennessee. I think it's definitely their best of the singles, it's very progressive. And I don't mean that necessarily lyrically, although those lyrics are really impressive. But musically, it's just very interesting. Singing, samples, talking, rapping, just a whole melange of sounds. Well, let's hear it, and I'll go on and on after that. <laughs> All right,
0: here it is, Tennessee. I know you're supposed to be my steering wheel, not just my spare tire. Lord, I ask you to be my guide. did
1: you know that song when it came out
0: i did not know it when it came out no i heard that song for the first time probably late 90s when i picked up a hip hop compilation that had, you can't touch this and Woom, there yep. is or whatever. I don't, I don't know. Like whatever the, all, like all the, the huge pop crossover hip hop songs were that one was on there.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, what's great about the song is it is a pop song. And I think some people treated the band as just a kind of a fluff band, but as much as I enjoy hammer, I mean, compare this to can't touch this or Woom, there it is, or mm-hmm. a lot of the hits of pop hits. Yeah. This actually has subtext and meaning and, is a lot more complex musically. And by the way, the album is called Three Years, Five Months, and Two Days in the Life of, which if memory serves as maybe how long it took to make the album or something, I know they started in the late 80s.
0: Okay, that would make sense.
1: This song, apparently, whatever this means, is in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame's 500 Songs that Shape Rock and Roll.
0: Really? Wow.
1: Yeah. It's also been listed in the book, 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. Mm-hmm. And I remember this, it got the best new artist it, the Grammys in '93, right? But I'll also just lastly add that Rolling Stone named them Band of the Year. Yeah, wow. After this album came out, so you can see it did catch the ears of a lot of rock critics and rock fans.
0: Yeah, um, but if you think about every band we listened to over the course of the season, and go like, "All right, Band of the Year," or rest yeah. of the element the last song we're gonna hear for the season. Yeah, I guess yeah. it's
1: it's perfect. <laughs> I was also found it interesting the samples i never paid attention most of their songs don't have samples and they're an interesting band because they actually did do live instrumentation mm-hmm. they also really confused me as a kid because they had so many band members and there was women which was not typical for hip-hop bands and there was an old guy baba oj he was in his 50s he was just hanging out on stage he was he's just credited as spiritual elder <laughs> but that's what i loved about the band i still appreciate it. they were into this communal spirit and they were also into like the roots of their culture and black culture and southern culture and the subtext of what it meant to be in our society. Apparently, this samples Prince, Joe Tex, James Brown, Brand New Heavies, and Curtis Blow. And not a lot of their music has samples, but I think it's meaningful in this one because this this song and some of the other songs have this kind of ancestors discussion. Mm. I mean, James Brown is like the most sampled probably artist ever in hip hop. He's right. foundational to the hip hop sound. Curtis Blow is one of the first rappers. Prince is Prince. Brand new heavies. Eh, I don't know as well. <laughs> Joe Tex, soul artists. But like that's the history of black music. Yeah. In those samples, and I don't think it's coincidence. But you know, that's my own opinion. I haven't read that, but
0: sure, I like that. Pretty
1: fascinating. Did you hear about the Prince sample? How the fallout on that?
0: No, I wouldn't hear about that. But I, I did want to mention the Prince sample. As far as I can tell, that Tennessee is Prince's voice from Alphabet Street, Slow Down.
1: Which I never knew. So according to Wikipedia, he heard them sample it. They didn't clear it. This was still when samples weren't Uh, 100% getting cleared.
0: Gotta clear Prince.
1: Now, a lot of rap artists lost their fortunes because of this. Right. And in a way that's really unfair because they're still writing original music and sometimes the sample is only two seconds of a three-minute song. But Prince, you know, he's famously protective of his IP, but I guess he's also a nice guy because he waited for it to be a big hit then he threw the hammer down. But all he asked was for $100,000. Okay. No songwriting credits, which you think about. This song is probably still played every day on the radio. That would all be Prince's estate getting that money. But he just said, you know, give me 100000 for St. Tennessee, and then we're good. Yeah. So I think that was a good gesture. I mean, if you compare it to Bismarck or Die La Soul that lost millions probably when they lost songwriting credit on their
0: biggest hits. Yeah. I guess this was 1992, you know? In a nutshell. We we heard all the modern <laughs> rock. We heard some things that didn't quite make the modern rock charts. Yeah,
1: quick question for you. You know, it's in a way shocking to think Pavement's amazing debut didn't chart. Mm-hmm. And not maybe quite as shocking about Guy Voices. but do we see those bands in the charts in the future?
0: Oh, that's a great question. So, of all of these bands we feature today, the only one that will ever chart on the modern rock charts is Pavement. They chart one time with Cut Your Hair. Wow. And, uh, that's crazy never again (laughs) well you know
1: that was probably the first pavement song i ever knew it was definitely a smash yeah
0: well all right the song of mystery for the episode was by an english band called the telescopes the song was called you set my soul from their 1992 untitled second album cool
1: thanks for sharing
0: yeah Thank you, everyone, so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the season. It was a bit long. It took <laughs> it took about a year and a half to get through a year of music, partially due to uh, you know illnesses and COVID and just being tired. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of a break. I'm not gonna leave you hanging for six months. So I actually have a couple really really special episodes that I've been sitting on for a while. Uh, we're gonna do something a little different. I've interviewed some uh, musicians and I'm, I'm just gonna spend the whole episode talking about one band and I, I think it's gonna be really cool so that's something to look forward to coming up somewhat soon and um with that i guess thank you so much jeremy
1: thank you will and i can't wait to listen to future
0: apps yeah glad to have you here i love to hear your thoughts on music and uh, pick your brain your your musical knowledge is extensive All you listeners, I'd love it if you subscribed, liked, reviewed, whatever all that stuff is. And um, if you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. I guess that's it. I'll catch you all in 1993. Have a good one.